So thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. We're joined for this episode by Stephen Mayfield. Stephen will be reading to us from and talking to us about Delphic Oracle USA. So Stephen, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Anytime. So let's just jump right in. And can you please tell us a bit about Delphic Oracle USA? This is a book that has two timelines, one that is in the 1920s and a, and a second timeline that is in the summer of 2014, right around the 4th of July. The two timelines are connected by a skeleton that is discovered in a vacant lot in the 2014 era that has its origins back in the, uh, the timeline from the 1920s. And essentially, it's a love story about a con man who comes to this little town in Nebraska and convinces the town that the long lost Oracle of Delphi is this young woman who is among them. The contemporary timeline then is telling the story of what uh, happened to them, to their descendants. uh, And that includes the narrator, Father Peter Goodfellow and his five siblings. Wonderful. Could we have our first reading, please? Sure. Thank you. I'll begin with the prologue. A fair warning. You are born with a mother and a father, always in a place. The place is part of you, as inescapable as a fingerprint. Where are you from? In your heart, you know the truth. You're from the place you were born. I'm from a town in Nebraska, once known as Myogramesto Station. I have never truly lived anywhere else. I never will. You are new here. Welcome. You are about to meet a great many people, too many to keep track of at first. Don't worry. You needn't remember them all. Some will become friends, others mere acquaintances. You'll forget a few that matter, hang on to a few that don't. Our little place includes a man unable to discern the difference between destiny and storm warnings, one with religion but no faith, one with faith but no religion, a kid known as Samson the Methodist, and a quartet of confused lovers. Here's a tip. Among the folks inhabiting these pages are a librarian, a con man, an enchantress, and a skeleton. Keep your eye on them. They will help answer the question of how a place called Maya Gramesto Station became home to the long-lost Oracle of Delphi. Chapter 1. It began in 1919, after a frigid and gray winter was followed by a windy, unpredictable spring. Fortunately, the end of May welcomed a fruitful summer and long, warm autumn. It made Myogramesto Station a hospitable place far into October, its residents quick to welcome Maggie Westinghouse and her mother after the travel-weary pair stepped off the afternoon train about a week before Halloween. The two wore thin coats, and told the story of a courageous husband and father, allegedly killed in the final days of the war to end all wars, leaving behind his lovely wife and a daughter, then 11 years old. All over the country, the boys who had survived the Major's War had been home for months, and the raging Spanish flu pandemic was on the wane. Meanwhile, the withering drought and unforgiving winds that sent many a farm swirling into the white-hot Midwestern sky were more than a decade off. Micromesto Station was a bustling county seat, serving the dozens of farms dotting the valley, a place boasting two doctors, three car dealerships, and eight thriving religious denominations. As the new decade of the 1920s approached, 
Most horse-drawn wagons had been replaced by Fords or Chevys, but radio had yet to take over the evenings, leaving people free to sit on their porches with glasses of lemonade, making fun of the frenetic and decadent city folks who gambled for a living at that faraway and profligate casino called Wall Street. Like Major Westinghouse, the town's dentist, Dr. Plutarch Roberts, had also served during the war to end all wars, although the closest he came to the trenches in Europe was a converted supply shed at Fort Benning, where he spent the war rummaging through the mouths of stateside officers and the petticoats of their wives. Unblemished by combat, the unctuously handsome Dr. Roberts hired Maggie's mother as his assistant, providing a small stipend and the apartment above his office. With his encouragement, the community embraced the young widow, even though visitors to their tiny flat discovered not a single photograph of brave Major Westinghouse. Even more curious, broodingly beautiful little Maggie bore a remarkable resemblance not only to film vamp Theta Vera, but to the landlord as well. Maggie and her mother settled in. Maggie enrolled at the South Ward School, proving to be as clever as she was beautiful while her mother remained ostensibly steadfast to the elusive memory of her gallant major. A delicate woman with, with the singing voice of an angel, Mrs. Westinghouse slowly overcame the waggling tongues. Likewise, the perplexing history and provocative resemblance her daughter shared with Dr. Roberts was eventually overlooked, although the unveiled sniping of Violet Roberts, the dentist's thin-lipped, aspish wife, eventually forced Maggie and her mother from the unadorned pews of St. Luke's Methodist Church and into the open arms of the Episcopalians. What, a, what an opening. So where did the idea, and, and really and the characters, where did they come from for you? They kind of found each other. This began as a short story many years ago uh, that I was publishing exclusively in literary journals at the time. And this piece was just very, the piece that eventually became chapter two in the book was just too long. So I put it aside and I started on a second story and I realized that the protagonist in the second story and the protagonist in the one I'd set aside lived in the same place. So I went through my ideas file and I found all these orphan characters that all seemed to live in this little town in the Midwest. And so I started to piece it together from there. Is your um your idea file, is that an actual file? That yeah. you, wow, I love that. Well, it's on my computer. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an electronic file. But mm-hmm. basically, when I come up with ideas or I come across something or occasionally I'll have a fragment of something I've written that just is not going to work in that piece, but I can't bear to part with it. <laughs> and so I'll just I'll throw it into that file. And sometimes if I'm stuck, I'll go into that file and I'll look and I'll see if there's something there that I can that I can resurrect and use. And I love that when you did that, they all lived in the same place because like, what were the chances that they would be inhabiting this kind of this vision and your imagination and your creativity that tied them together? Well, I think it wasn't so much that they were tied to that specific place as they were tied to a specific type of place. Mm. And, and I realized that what I really wanted to write was a saga of life in this town because these two timelines that I referenced are 90 are almost 90 years apart. So this takes place across nearly a century in America and in that respect I was thinking about writing something that was a reflection of American life that probably never existed but you kind of wish would have. <laughs> 
<laughs> Wonderful. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. I'm going to go on from uh, that same section. Five years later, in July 1924, July Pennybaker appeared in Chicago with a reckless gash of a grin and a bag full of delectably outlandish claims. He was an ace pilot in the war, some said, while others were told the story of a financial wunderkind on Wall Street who'd abandoned riches to seek wisdom and tranquility in the monasteries of Tibet. July claimed to have visited mythical Shangri-La and tracked the Khyber Pass under the protection of the Crown Prince of Afghanistan. He described traveling by camel to Damascus on the legendary Silk Road, afterward making his way to Istanbul and then taking the Orient Express to Vienna. Eventually, he ended up in Paris, consorting in the City of Light with Picasso, Gertrude Stein, and a boisterous, boisterous writer named Hemingway. July Pennybaker claimed to have been a magician and a bartender and a barber, to have ridden with Pancho Villa, discoursed with an exiled pre-revolutionary Lenin, and walked along the Great Wall with Sun Yat-sen. He was handsome, with an enviable head of hair, alarmingly blue eyes, the body of a trapeze artist, and the shameless charm of a Chautauqua preacher. Bugs Moran, a member of the Northside O'Banion mob, latched on to July, moving the flamboyant adventurer into his inner circle of thugs, even though the fast-talking stranger seemed more interested in Moran's accounting than his firearms. July soon had a closet full of tailored suits that draped as easily over his athletic frame as the pretty girls who hung on his arm. He affected a Chicago accent, remembered the names of everyone he met, and tipped nearly as well as rival mobster Scarface Capone. Best of all, he could sing like an Irish devil and soon became a favorite at McGovern's saloon. Bugs loved him. The rest of the O'Banion gang didn't, and it wasn't long before Jaime Weiss and schemer Drutzi were in Bugs's ear, pointing out that July Pennybaker always seemed to be missing when the bullets started flying. They convinced Bugs that their dashing colleague needed to make his bones or become a pile of them. Not long thereafter, on a January day in 1925, with glacial wind shrieking off Lake Michigan and the sky drab with overcast, July waited with Bugs, Jaime, and Schemer outside rival mob boss Papa Johnny Torrio's South Clyde Avenue apartment. Bugs, Jaime, and Schemer had their own guns. Bugs had loaned July a fully loaded 38. By the time Papa Johnny emerged, the shooters, alleged in the next day's Chicago Tribune to include, quote, a fourth unknown assailant, end quote, had been waiting for three hours. They were cold and impatient, three of the gunmen letting loose a torrent of bullets. Afterward, the assassins headed to McGovern's to celebrate, tossing back one drink each and about to tip another when news reached them that Torrio had survived. Bugs dispatched July to finish the job, and the glib talker, without a single mob scalp to his credit, headed out. An hour passed, then two, then six. July did not return. Soon thereafter, Bugs discovered an empty space in his office safe where $10,000 had once resided. Bugs was fond of July and willing to forgive his failure to put even one bullet into Papa Johnny. However, there wasn't a man alive whose charms could compete with $10,000. Bugs raged for a while, kicking a hole in the wall of his office, throwing a paperweight through the window, and shooting out the street lamp across the street. 
Afterward, he instructed Jaime and Schemer to find July, get his money back, and then offered their former associate accommodations at the bottom of Lake Michigan. The two goons were delighted and rushed over to July's apartment on North Dearborn. The flat was deserted, save a dog-eared English translation of parallel lives on the bedside table and a phalanx of expensive suits in the armoire. The pockets in the suits were as empty as Bugs' safe. July Pennybaker had skipped town. The same year that July disappeared, Maggie Westinghouse was 17 years old and had begun to suffer visions that visited her in a leisurely way, provoking laughter and mostly incoherent babbling. Always they ended in a swoon and troubled sleep. She spoke while slumbering, describing exotic locales or carrying on spirited conversations with unseen beings, afterward waking with no memory of what had transpired. Folks around town had always been a little cowed by Maggie. She was beautiful and men made fools of themselves while a lot of women tried to even things out by whittling away at her reputation. She spent a lot of time on her own, Grammy told me, taking long walks that took her to the edge of town and beyond. It was June 1925 when Maggie walked along the tracks near the Micromesto station fairgrounds and saw the door to a railroad switch house propped open. Inside, she discovered a man asleep on a pile of gunny sacks. Ooh. There are a lot of characters in the book that are names that we might recognize from um, from other stories and other history. And so I'm really curious about the sort of research that you did to bring 1925 alive and super interested if there's something that you learned about through your research that really intrigued you as a writer, as a creative, as a human, but it just didn't find its way into the book. Maybe it didn't fit. It was an interesting Mm -hmm. detail, but it just, you know, just, it was not the book for it. Was there anything like that? There, there was, uh, and you know, as with any work of fiction, I, I'm I don't feel particularly bound necessarily to absolute truth, and I know that the historical fiction writers would probably, you know, not agree with that. But I don't consider myself a historical fiction writer, and so I wanted to make sure that the people that I say were alive at the time were alive at the time, and I wanted to understand you know, who was Bugs Moran and how did he and Capone fit together? Because that becomes important later. And, you know, who, who was, was Bugs the head of the mob or was he part of a mob? And, and so all these people are real and I researched them to get a feeling for how they fit together. Interestingly enough, a lot of the stuff that I originally wrote, I pulled out because it just didn't become important anymore. What was important is what they did and not necessarily this backstory that was, a that was attached to them. But one of the things that did happen in this is that there's another character that lived in this town that didn't make it into the book. And he was a, uh, a Japanese American bartender, a first generation Japanese American. His parents said it had come from Italy. So, or from uh, Japan. So they were Nisei, but he was Issei. And uh, his family was interned during the Second World War, and he and his brother were able to get out of the camps by agreeing to volunteer for what became the 445th Regimental Combat Battalion, which was what they called the Nisei or the Issei Regiment. No, it was the Nisei Regiment. They were the Japanese Americans that fought in World War II in the European theater, and they ended up. I don't know if it's still true, but. It, at the time, for many, many years, they were the single most decorated military unit in the history of the United States. 
because these guys were just incredibly brave and they suffered high casualties. They had more Medal of Honor winners than anyone else. And I spent a tremendous amount of time researching this. And I read books by other people who had either been in the camps or wrote about the camps, the the war uh, relocation centers. And when I got done with it, what ended up happening is I had this very, very long section of about 45,000 words that was mostly spent away from the town. And I, I've been in a writing group for uh, over 25 years now. And, and one of the people in my group who's got a really good eye and had, you know, read this, this story and she loved that section, that, that portion of the book. But she said, you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the book. And I was struggling to try and figure out how to fit things together. And I really, and when, when I took that out, everything else fit together. So it's now it's sitting in my ideas file as a virtually novella length piece that I may do someday, although I sometimes hesitate because I don't know that I, I culturally, I don't know if I have the background to do it and I, I want to do it correctly. Do, do we have time? I've got one more little anecdote I can tell you that, yes, we, that relates to this. Sure. Well, my wife and I live, we live in Portland now, but we lived in San Francisco before we came here. And we were over in the Pacific Heights uh, area, not living there, but we were over there for a, a medical appointment that my wife had. And I had taken our dogs up to the park to walk them around. And she called me and she was done. And I go back and she comes out to the car and she said, there's this guy back at the bus stop. And he was asking me for directions on how to get on the bus. And he's very old. And I said, well, just tell him we'll give him a ride home. So she said, good. I thought you'd say that. So she goes and she gets him and he comes up and he's this 90 year old um, Japanese American man. And he opens the car door and he said, "Uh, thank you for the ride. In return, I'm going to give you a really good story. And it turned out that he had been a uh, first generation Japanese American. Family was sent to the camps he got out by enlisting in the 45th Regimental Combat Battalion. So he was exactly this person that I had written about. After the service, this is neither here nor there, but after the service, after his time in the service, he moved to New York where he was a dance instructor. And when we got him home, he finished his story and he gets out of the car and he says, I'll give you guys dance lessons. He said, we'll start with the samba. That's easiest. And he didn't know my wife, who's a very good dancer. So anyway, I said, do you want me to walk you up to your door? Because it was kind of up a hill. And he says, no, I'll be fine. He says, I can do the moonwalk. So do you know who Michael Jackson is? I said, yeah. He said, Michael Jackson does the moonwalk. I can do the moonwalk. And he, at 90, did the moonwalk backwards up a hill. But how this relates is that the story he told me was exactly the story that I'd written. So I, I had actually captured what happened to him. But again, you know, it's it's always a struggle when you write about things you don't know that involve oppression, you know, because how do you really accurately capture how someone felt if you've not been through that yourself or if you've not had, had that experience, you know, I think you can you can try, but I'm not sure that one ever, uh, ever does. And so you want to get it right, you know, and so I worry about that. I think that's a definitely um, a valid and responsible worry. And um, I think it's also a beautiful thing that uh, one that you all offered him the ride that you, you know, you, you said, well, you know, just let's just give him a ride, but also how sweet that your wife knew that you were going to say that as well. 
And um, oh yeah, so it's just it's, it's just a wonderful. She gives wonderful her story. she gives her umbrella to homeless people on the street. She she's that person. So yeah. so I anyway. That's beautiful. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. I'm going to read from the contemporary timeline, the one that takes place in 2014, to give people a flavor for that. And the book is being narrated by a Catholic priest, Father Peter Goodfellow. He is the grandson of Maggie Westinghouse, who I just read about. He has five siblings, one of whom I reference here, Teddy. He has a sister, Daisy, who becomes a principal in this section I'm going to read. And I'll reference a brother-in-law, Francis Wounded Darrow, who was married to another of his sisters. That's probably all you need to know at this point. And this is the sort of smart aleck part of how I write. I'm about 10% John Steinbeck and about 90% smart aleck. So (laughs) it's from chapter six. On the same 4th of July that brought Teddy home from a mine in Kansas, the day broke sunny, and by mid-morning, the air was already fragrant with the aroma of barbecue and spent firecrackers. A carnival was in town with a baseball game, hot rod races, and a greased pig scramble scheduled for the afternoon, followed by an evening parade and fireworks. The PA system's down for the count, Tom Beagle Gibbs happily notified a few fellows who had gathered at the cozy lunch around 10 a.m. for early beers. The malfunction promised to effectively silence Mayor Ed Dogberry, a religious fundamentalist and concrete thinker who frustrated an existentialist like Beagle. Now, if my brother-in-law, Francis Wounded Arrow, is a man of religion without faith, then his fishing buddy, Beagle Gibbs, could be seen as a man who stumbled upon faith but found himself short of religion. He harbored a casual belief in a higher intelligence, but figured the Almighty was too busy to pay much attention to a fellow who simply wanted to mind his own business. I'm flying under God's radar, he'd once told me, and this had worked well for a number of years. As he saw it, God didn't nag him about his lackluster work ethic or lack of ambition. He looked the other way when Beagle drank too much or slipped a free pack of smokes into his pocket over at the Hinky Dinky. God had given Beagle a mother with enough money to support them both and got him fired from the jobs he really hated. And on that particular Independence Day, as Beagle watched the parade begin from a spot on the grass near Mom, my sister-in-law, Monica, and me, God had laid out another perfect Fourth of July. The spectacle began with a blue and yellow helicopter flying low over Scout Street, towing a streamer that proclaimed, God bless America and Dogberry Motors. The fire truck came next, issuing short, shrill bursts from its siren, the department's still unused teeth of life contraption proudly mounted atop the cab. It was followed by the Purple Hat Ladies, the high school band, and an army of sweaty cheerleaders. The best Slow-moving floats with papier-mâché scenery, balloons, and brightly colored streamers was yet to come, all of it leading to a big finale the planning committee had entrusted to the Zenith Shriners Town clown car. Did you hear about the skeleton they found across the street from Francis's house? Beagle asked us. The father of our country float was lumbering past with Police Chief Johnson K. Johnson striking what he figured was a George Washington-like pose, one leg atop a bale of hay, his cotton ball wig slightly askew. I did, I replied. Mom and Monica ignored the question. Heck of a parade, Beagle said, eyeing my mother, even though he knew no magnifying glass in the world was powerful enough to find her interest in his opinion. One heck of a parade, 
he repeated as the moody and brilliant Palomino Prince Valiant high-stepped down the street with my sister Daisy in the saddle. The horse stopped in front of us, and Daisy gave the reins a tug that sent Prince Valiant rearing, his front hooves pawing at the air, his golden mane shimmering in the sunshine. Daisy, an attractive woman short by a couple of years from her 40th birthday, pulled off her substantial cowboy hat and waved it high above her head. Beagle cheered and waved back. Did you ever notice, he inexplicably volunteered, how when a horse catches your eye, it poops? A moment later, Prince Valiant lifted his tail and noisily validated Beagle's observation onto the street, marking the start of the Beagle Gibbs religious period. The idea that his offhand remark was perceived by the Almighty as prayer was a consideration he would be unable to brush off, making Prince Valiant's contribution to the 4th of July parade a propitious event. However, like many things that begin with promise, only to butt up against fate, Beagle's religious period was destined to end a few weeks later when he accidentally nailed his balls to the roof of his mother's house. <laughs> so where can we buy Delphic Oracle USA? The best place to go would either be to uh, my publisher's website, regalhousepublishing.com, or to my favorite bookstore here in Portland, Annie Bloom's Books, and it's uh, anniebloomsbooks.com. And I guess if there would be a third place, it would be Rediscovered Books, which has locations in Boise, Idaho and Caldwell, Idaho. I used to live in Idaho many years ago. And uh, Rediscovered Books is an independent bookstore that is still uh, still surviving out there in the, in the hinterlands. Wonderful. Stephen, thank you so much for being our guest, for reading to us, for answering the questions. It's been a pleasure having you. And it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me.